Yeah, so where did we get to yesterday? I was just getting ready to ask you about what you've been doing because you shared an email with me a while back that you'd just gotten an EEG machine recently and we're getting into more research. And I was just really curious to hear what you were doing with the EEG machine, what kind of research you're doing, what just wanting to get the download. And then, of course, thought, well, this would be great to record for Buddhist Geeks too because it's been a while since we've connected and would love to hear just how you're doing, what's going on. Yeah, so the story all began like 25 years ago when Insight stages started making more sense to me, or really 35 years ago when they started messing up my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I wondered what the heck they were and had no idea. And then I ran into meditation maps. And then eventually I talked to hundreds of people and read thousands of posts about them. And that all built up some pattern recognition that I then as a clinician realized over at least a decade of doing that, that these patterns really are patterns that are clinically identifiable as much as some other weird disease patterns we diagnose all the time that are equally strange, like strange things like Kawasaki's disease and stuff, or migraines, which can present all these different odd ways, and yet are all in some ways kind of the same thing. And so I recognized that, hey, the, the, the medical world would love to know about this stuff, the psychiatric world would really like to know what these things are because I know they see these people because I have friends who end up crashing into the medical establishment and it doesn't understand what's going on. And then they get misdiagnosed, mistreated, mismedicated, stigmatized, confused. They don't get normalized. They don't have reasonable referrals. That None of the stuff you would hope would happen in medicine happens. And all of my colleagues in medicine went into it, basically, with the rarest of exceptions and psychiatry and psychology to help people. And they're not really helping people to the degree that they could. So that then led to when I retired, I started thinking, okay, I'm actually in a position where I could do something about this. I have an MD and an MSPH in epidemiology, and I've published some papers and some pretty good journals and actually know how this is done. Maybe I start trying to figure out how to get these things into the medical mainstream, realizing that would be a huge thing to do. And then that led me to end up being invited to a Slack group with Dr. Andrea Grabovac and Julieta Galante and some others who were trying to figure out how to actually get these things into the clinical mainstream to get diagnostic scales that could diagnose like the arising and passing away event or difficult insight stages that may follow them or to have a, an appreciation of the range of the weird and the interesting and the territory such that there would at least be someone in the medical industry that they could at least refer people to, even if they, as practitioners or primary care doctors or psychiatrists or whatever, didn't know the whole thing, they would know how to spot the pattern and go, okay, you need a this person who knows this and can do this, right? So just like in emergency medicine, we have plenty of things we don't know enough to really completely treat. Mm. And yet we know who to send them to generally. You need a neurologist, you need a cardiothoracic surgeon, you need a whatever. And so to at least have that basic triage, preliminary diagnosis capability and referral capability, and to have a system in place that could know about these people and be able to give them ICD-10 codes and diagnoses and you know bill for it and all the stuff that the medical establishment wants to be able to do, which from a certain point of view sounds like a crushing bureaucratic nightmare and yet, from another point of view, has to happen because 
now people are meditating by the millions. People are being mindful of this and that. They're doing yoga classes and breathing exercises and shamanic journeying and all this stuff that throws people into these stages much more often. Hmm. So me and all of my high-end academic researcher friends, all of which actually in this group I'm currently helping to organize, they've all been through some of this stuff. They all know it for themselves. They all know these things are real. They've all seen the patterns for themselves and their few trusted friends they've told this stuff to. They generally don't talk about it much because it's taboo. And yet they've been there and they know. And it's important to them. And we all share this vision of figuring out how to get this into real world clinical practice, into the DSM-5 or six or whatever it becomes. I know it's sort of this morphing document now into textbooks of emergency medicine, psychiatry and primary care and probably neurology and wherever else the stuff needs to be. And in a way that it's institutionally accepted. And I think that's inevitable because these patterns are obvious and real that in some form, in some language, in some configuration, that's going to happen. And then the question is how? So after the Slack group, I ended up getting invited to Cambridge where I spent last summer working with Yulia Galante trying to do some of this research. And I very rapidly realized, okay, I'm not enough. The, the few of us are not enough. The time scale I'm thinking on is nowhere near enough. This is gonna take years to decades. This is going to take large teams of people. This is going to take foundations and institutes and stuff. This is not going to be quick at all. And I started talking to everybody about what realistically it would take and all the studies we would need to do, like to differentiate the stages of insight from bipolar disorder cleanly as, or as cleanly as can be done, and to study their different long-term trajectories because the stages of insight usually get better, bipolar tends to get worse. There are these differences and the timing tends to be different. Some of the qualities can be different or to figure out what are optimal dark night mitigation and treatment strategies. What are the optimal meditation techniques that are less likely to cause dramatic effects and yet still produce transformative healing insights? These things haven't really been well compared and we need meditation centers that are not dedicated to any tradition or their dogma that can just actually do the studies and the long-term longitudinal follow-up and the neurophenomenology and the EEGs and fMRIs and neurochemistry and dopamine and serotonin and whatever else we need to do to figure out what this stuff is, how to describe it, how to characterize it, how to properly diagnose it, how to differentiate it reasonably from other conditions, what to keep in your differential, what kind of tests you need to run, what you don't, best strategies for helping people with these things, how to normalize it, where to refer people to, and to have somebody built into the healthcare system that has these competencies, which means then actually getting it into continuing medical education for people into, and into medical school curricula. And that level of deep structural paradigmatic change is going to take a long time and a crazy amount of money. So that has led to my current obsession with trying to A, network all these people, B, get each of their interests and dreams solidified into something that actually has dollar signs at the end of it and numbers and what that those numbers are for and reasonable timescales and organized teams such that we can hopefully figure out a way to fund this stuff, which will take tens to eventually probably hundreds of millions of dollars, which is a terrible thing to say, except that that's how long a lot of these things take. Mm -hmm. And there are rare diseases that have been studied vastly more extensively than the stages of insight, which happen way more commonly. I mean, there are diseases that 10 people in the whole world have that have gotten millions and millions of dollars of funding to try to sort them out. That's and interesting. 
Yeah, and we haven't had anything like that. And just to bring one single new drug to market, and it might be a drug that isn't even that good. It might be just a Me Too drug that basically uses the same mechanism as some other drug and might not even really be adding anything to the actual clinical mix of upgraded capabilities. Could be 2.6 billion on average, right? I would take a hundredth of that <laughs> to start, <laughs> which unfortunately though is $26 million. <laughs> Although really, in all honesty, what I'm looking for right now is about 40 million to start. <laughs> Great. So that's sort of specific, but Maybe I, so. you know, I, yeah, I can break down that number by who, what, what study, what university, what group, what team, why that number. But that's where I am at the moment. And so I'm trying to figure out how to have the conversations with philanthropists to make sure I can answer, you know, an hour or two worth of highly detailed questions about the what's, the why's, the who's, the how's and the why it costs that. And getting all that information together in a coherent form, which I think I've largely got and making sure there is at least enough of a core team in place, which at the moment is about 14 people, to be able to give a really good start to a lot of that foundational, essential research to just sort this stuff out clinically and make it cohere in some way that it's linguistically and terminologically and medically acceptable and as validated as we can get it. So that's mm. my current grand series of research projects, which involves everything from extremely grandiose, vast catalogs of neurophenomenological stuff with the sequence it unfolded in and machine learning to help crunch some of that stuff to much more mundane studies, like looking at when the arising and passing away hits in pregnancy and contributes to postpartum depression, like has happened to some moms I know. And those kinds of things, or just tying it in with the literature on exploding head syndrome, which is fascinating, actually. And for those who like reading about this stuff, you can read about it or even validating some of the claims that were made 120 years ago or so by William James in the Varieties of Religious Experience, where he actually did this remarkably good job of actually cataloging the twice born, the called out, those people who suffered on the spiritual path and were tormented by it and actually did a pretty good job. It's, if you've been through that book, which I realize is a bit long, kind of hard language sometimes, is amazing. And so that kind of work is what inspires me these days. And I spend most of my day doing something like that. And then the EEG, so I bought a Cognionics Quick 20R, which mm -hmm. is a pretty pricey little dry EEG 19 or 20 lead rig that actually has a good sampling rate and really pretty good signal to noise ratio and is a quite fine thing just to sort of start learning about for my own self where is the signal can i see signal on a from a research point of view it's a pretty low end eeg but from a home rig point of view it's a pretty awesome eeg and to see if there's actually signal there when i reproducibly shift say from equanimity to the three doors to fruition and come out into the afterglow can i see a signal there that's different and reproducible and doesn't look like other things well, actually, yeah, I think I can, which is pretty cool, which has inspired a study I'm going to, that I've got the preliminary funding for the first pilot part of at Harvard, doing fMRI and EEG with some friends there, mm -hmm. and setting up preliminary dreams of collaborations with a bunch of other people at a bunch of other universities, everything from anthropologists to neuroscientists to clinical psychiatrists and professional PhD phenomenologists like my friend Terrier, who that's what he does. He's literally a microphenomenologist. This is his core field of academic work. Mm. So yeah, I've been connecting like with Jay Sanguinetti, Shinzen Young's mm -hmm. researcher who does mm -hmm. EEG and 
fMRI and ultrasound. And we're all trying to get our terminology more standardized. We're doing the sort of the hard work of systematizing our research dreams into something that makes big picture sense and then makes big funding sense. Yeah. Thinking cool. about the reasonable critiques and questions people are going to be doing. So I've been talking for a long time. So anyway, that's the big picture. Yeah. <laughs> kind of some no, it's great. there. Yeah. No, it's cool. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, I love what a big, bold vision it is and makes sense to me that big dollar signs would be attached to this kind of big societal level change type of visions. So yeah. um, it's, it makes, makes good sense on the, on the surface. Yeah. And to have like national conferences about this and to have it get into major textbooks re- requires a lot of foundational research and articles to be in place. Mm-hmm. And so that'll take a long time. And these are yeah. conservative organizations like the DSM. They're pretty slow to change stuff. And so if we want to influence them, we need, we need to have really done our homework with good longitudinal, large population-based studies and cohorts and things. So, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable challenge, but it keeps me off the streets and keeps me busy. So it's been fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm curious. Um, I mean, it sounds like there's almost two if I'm understanding correctly, there's like two components of this. There's the scientific research of the stages of insight and all that goes along with that. And then there's this sort of um, process of bringing that into the, as you said, the paradigmatic change in the actual medical systems and and societal systems. I mean, and those are two big things. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, but they're both, but but they're kind of. It, it's interesting because I have questions about the first one. Like, well, what do you think? What do you think will be applicable about the output of the science, and questions about how to actually get all of that done? I mean, that's beyond my scope because I don't know much about the medical industry. But I, I'm curious what the what the implications you think of of doing that kind of research will be because the it's, you know I, I know you have the goal of bringing these protocols and, and things into different places, and that sounds huge because it'll have such a huge mental health benefit to society untangling those things like you said the differential being able to differentiate those things and the science of that and taking those things seriously as a scientific research like that's only seems like it's just as starting to happen right yeah so people have intermittently researched powerful spiritual experiences yes. for over a hundred like years t- like the tm seriously. researchers yeah yeah, well, even before them, like Maslow, like a lot of people don't know, Maslow's big thing was peak experiences, which is basically mm-hmm. the rising and passing away, as we would call it. You know, he's known for his hierarchy of human needs, but that wasn't his core thing. His obsession was with peak experiences, mm. you know, and that was in the 50s, 60s and stuff. Mm, so, nice. yeah, so this, this goes back. And then through the 70s, yeah, you've got the TM people who did a lot of research, some of variable quality, but still interesting and then you've got the Groffs and then all the psychedelic research people before all that was shut down. It's actually an important part of what's of this world. So Right. So you've got probably, all of the you've got all of those things, but then the specific stages yeah, of insight. It hasn't that's been studied to anything like really the degree I would like it to. It and depth. I should add an interesting qualifier here. I recently got made aware of a school of thought, particularly through a scholar monk person at um at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, who said that our conception of the stages of insight is entirely wrong, that none of these are Buddhist stages of insight, that what we're talking about has nothing to do with traditional Buddhism. It was an interesting point of view. Mm. But regardless of whether or not that's even true, 
the pattern of spiritual high to spiritual low with a lot of defining phenomenology and differentiating mm-hmm. phenomenology still holds, even if you dissociate it entirely yeah, with right. Buddhist traditional insight criteria or the Vasudhimaga or any of this stuff. The pattern is still there in spades. I have literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of this on the Dharma Overground Forum, on my private emails and conversations I've had. The pattern is just mm. staggeringly clear. Even if we don't call this stages of insight, we need to figure mm. out language that is acceptable from a medical billing system-wide insurance company medical record point of view and that acknowledges something about this Mm well-defined curiously human pattern that i see across a whole range of people and as more people are doing psychedelics this is a thing right it can look a little wilder sometimes on psychedelics but now up to maybe a third of the people I'm now helping with this territory, actually got into it the very first time through some shamanic journey work or, you know, you might, or, you know, psychonaut exploration for those who don't like the co-opting of the word shaman or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sorry. It was an entheogenic mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. that thrust them into this territory and they were never the same. And suddenly they were dealing with this process, which doesn't seem to start in, in everybody, but when it does, it's, it's got a lot of predictable elements, both of manifestation and temporal sequence, as well as things you can do about it. And time-tested technologies that can make a difference in it, as you and I have both been, you know, helping people with for, you know, for a long time now, as, as we both help other people with meditation experiences. So regardless of what you call it, Um, The pattern is clearly there as one of the possible patterns that people go through. So figuring out how this integrates with the language that the psychedelic community is using, how this works with the language of other religious traditions like Hindu tradition, all the Kundalini language and that sort of stuff, how this works with Christian mystical language, how this works with secular language and the scientific literature that already exists on some of this stuff, because some of the stuff is sort of described just really badly and there's some patterns they didn't see, as far as I can tell, like again, exploding head syndrome, and pulling that all together into something that's coherent. And that's going to require the kind of work that actually happened, say, in chemistry, where they standardized chemistry. There aren't big debates about chemical nomenclature these days, or at least the fundamentals of it, maybe around the far extremes of the periphery, or biology, or animal taxonomy, or even the standard terms of medicine. These are things that now people agree on, and they get, they've gotten over the language mostly, and they can focus on the, the function and good clinical care. And so even doing that kind of work, which in some ways is very anthropological, you have to Mm. bring a lot of interested parties together. You have to listen to a lot of people's concerns that were co-opting ancient traditions or misrepresenting their language. You have to deal with the politics of the mindfulness community that really, Mm. for all their wonderful intentions, really doesn't want warning labels on their products. And so in that regard, unfortunately, have become a bit like the pharmaceutical industry where they just do not want to believe this could possibly harm you. And even if it could, they really don't want anybody, they don't really want to have to tell anybody that. And it's not that mindfulness isn't generally doing a lot of great things for people. And is it really that unsafe? No. But does it occasionally cause insight stages? Well, yeah, it's based on the practices that cause insight stages. And while I just had a fascinating argument with someone who totally disagrees with me on that, I think think that's true because I've seen it in my own experience and, and in plenty of reports. 
I think this does have very, very broad implications、mm. and even military applications. So, for example, I've met some Marines. These were tough fighters who had been in Iraq and Afghanistan, strong people, and yet they crossed the horizon and passing away hit the dark night, and it wrecked them. It totally wrecked them. Like they went from hyper-functional,、oh, yeah. extremely tough soldiers to. People who are really struggling to put their minds and hearts and everything back together into some sort of functional configuration.、Mm. And we're very challenged by that. And so I actually、yeah. think that there are military implications because、yeah. I would actually bet that the hyper aware situations、mm. a lot of troops find themselves in with long marches, with long watches on guard duty or whatever at some perimeter, super carefully scanning the environment at a hyper aroused state of attention. Like, that's the kind of stuff that throws people above the arising and passing away. And then, if the next thing they find is some horrible situation, the combination of that and Dark Knight stages seems to be horrific from a psyche point of view, right? Because they're already sort of sensitized to the dark, and then you just cram a whole lot of real blood and guts and death of friends and personal wounds and trauma and IEDs and killing people and seeing people die onto that mind state. And it seems to make a total mess of people. So, I actually think there are military implications of this. One of the groups I'll be reaching out to、mm. at some point are military organizations to say, hey, I don't know what percentage of your fighting force is running into this, but I know it's not zero. And can we have a conversation about that? And then there are even security implications, because I actually have this weird notion that some of these people who get hyperzealous in a religious way and then are willing to kill themselves with a suicide bomb are people who have had somebody usually amplify andor exploit. Their religious conversion experience and the dark crash that follows that for their own political or terrorist or、mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them gain. I don't, you know, I realize the label of a terrorist is a complicated thing to be using, but you hear what I mean. Some of these people are just、yeah. killing lots of people that were innocent and didn't need to die, right? So, so I actually think there are security implications, military implications, psychedelic implications,、mm-hmm. mindfulness. Implications. And then some people just get into this stuff in daily life. It's happened to plenty of people I know. They, were, they weren't in a meditative context. They weren't in a psychedelic context. They weren't in a spiritual context. They were just doing something, and all of a sudden, boom, they found themselves in insight territory. And I know people that even happened to as kids. And I know people who disagree with me on this and say, no, 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 that's not actual insight stages. They're massive explosion of consciousness followed by their body dissolving through the floor, seeing visions of ghosts you know, creeping through their body and then freaking out and running for no reason when they had never done anything like that before. That's something else. Okay, fine. But still, the pattern is real. <laughs> and you see it again and again. And so, to bring awareness of this broadly,、mm-hmm. I think、mm-hmm. is an ethical responsibility. Because,、yeah. you know, f- for a long time, I've just hyper compartmentalized my life. There was my clinical life of emergency medicine. And then there, I really didn't bring the doctor side of it into my talking with people about meditation. But I just can't, I can't do this anymore <laughs> and pretend that they're not highly connected. And I just can't stand the thought of dying before I've at least made some shot at this. And, You know, helps to empower people to finish up that work because it very well may be I die before this is even done. I'm realistic about the timescales and how hard this is, but still, I'm just compelled to try. Nice. Cool. Well, I'm rooting you on. Thanks. What are your thoughts on any of that?、Uh, well, it's, it's interesting because it's the, the,、uh, like you said, there's so many implications to what you're talking about. 
because it's it's such a human universal human pattern and thus it must play out in everything that humans do and potentially relevant in so many different fields of human activity so that it's kind of like whoa there's a lot to this and you know i guess i notice that on the kind of you know world centric level you know it's like oh this is good for humanity this needs to happen <laughs> that seems the most important thing on on certain level and then I, as a meditator and as a person you know who's like interested in the science and technology of meditation i'm like oh yeah I'm like nerding out on that piece as well and curious about you know the implications what that the development of that science would mean for the field and for uh, meditation tech and you know all kinds of um, things Nice. And then the other thing is, I have a bunch of what I'll um, sort of jovially call the technorati, right? Mm. So the, the people who have made very impressive amounts of money through innovating in the tech sphere. And a lot of them share something of a vision that we're going to upgrade the consciousness of humanity. You know, the more spiritually minded of them through their entheogenic experiences or toad experiences or meditative experiences or whatever, have come to some understanding for themselves that there are upgrades of consciousness that are available. Mm -hmm. There are different ways of perceiving reality that might hopefully lead to more altruism or more compassion or wiser business decisions or better environment or more peace in the world or something. And they, they share something of a vision that if we can get people to wake up, if we can upgrade the consciousness, then we will all be better off for it and we'll stand a better chance of living a long, healthy lives on a much better planet with much better society. Hmm. And I agree with them in principle, but in some of the specifics, I realize, you know, this journey can sometimes have its rough spots and it's not necessarily a linear path. And if they share a vision of large numbers of people entering the path of awakening in a much more active structural change to their own brain kind of way, then some of those people are going to run into some of these phenomena, some of this mm. mood instability, some of this energetic stuff, some of the highs and lows, the visionary stuff, the stuff that feels like powers, stuff that modern psychiatry might diagnose as psychosis, but may not actually need that stigmatizing label. A lot of those people actually just need some trips sitting and they'll be fine. You know, they don't need hospitalization and meds. That's a judgment call, I realize. It's tricky. Anyway, it's not mm. like it's an easy sort of thing to know ahead of time. But the point is that some reasonable portion of the people who believe that they need to save the world, that they have the power, the connections, the technology, the vision, in order for that to work the way a lot of them think it will, they're going to need broad healthcare systems that when people show up in spiritual crisis and they're going through some transformative experience that happens to involve dark elements or challenging elements or even really super ecstatic elements like now, now they think they're the next buddha which i've had i don't know 20 30 conversations with people who got into some spiritually ecstatic state and were sure they were the next saver of the universe or something how many you know, 20 yeah, at 30? least maybe wow. 30. I don't know, wow. quite a bunch, right? And, and we're thoroughly convinced of this for some number of days, usually on meditation retreats, but not always, sometimes psychedelic and sometimes lasting for days to weeks after and sometimes just spontaneously. And the curious thing, though, is they look like a... Inflation. Like a, yeah, something. It looks like a manic episode, except then 
you know, usually a few days later, they're better and they may never have that again in their life. So it doesn't have the same long-term trajectory as manic episodes, typically, though there are some interesting exceptions. And then sorting out the one from the other, true bipolar from just spiritual highs, spiritual lows, and the weird sort of identity shifts that can come from that process sometimes. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of stuff that the medical world is not good at. And if you want this happening right. on mass, that's absolutely the, the, true. the medical and psychiatric world needs to be good at this, even if what, it's not yeah. that common, even if it's just 100 people who meditate or one in a thousand, that's still a crazy large numbers of people these days. Or let's yeah. say it was even one in a thousand people who were doing psychedelics. That's a lot of people these days. And I think, you know, based on some of the science that's coming out from the Imperial College of London and Johns Hopkins, and yeah. even going back to some of the old research that people are dusting off that was done by the original Swiss pioneers and some of those people and people around the world who are experimenting with LSD and later psilocybin, et cetera, you know, there clearly is some healing potential from these substances. And yet, if you're going to be doing this, you have to recognize that you're going to throw some people into territory that can be destabilizing in the short term, both in terms of highs and lows and other weird effects. And you need people who are seasoned yeah. and guiding people through that and recognizing it, normalizing it and mitigating right. it. And it seems and, like a lot of the problem is the cross interactivity, right? Like as soon as someone gets into that sense of existential dissolution, it's like all, all the other psychodynamic, you know, all the other things happening in their psych psyche, you know, are also interacting with that, they're also dissolving, you know, there's a sense of everything dissolving. Um, yes. That, and, and that, you know, I, 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 that's what I see, it gets very complicated, is how do you know whoever's coming in the door to learn a technique or who's downloading an app, certainly, you know, how do you know what is in them that's like like the example of the, you know, the military example that you, you just don't know what's going to get un uncorked or or what kind of thing will what kind of thing will start to to unfold as a result of this this sort of catalyzing uh insight that is absolutely true yeah that's tricky so that's what i dream of these days and this is i realize the vision is in some ways totally grandiose and absurd and yet i can't help but feel this is important and I'm blessed in that I find myself in this position where at the moment I don't have to work for a living. And so I have plenty of time and I find myself compelled very strongly to try to organize the big structures that can really do that work because I'm not enough to do it. I'm not, I'm not a hundredth of enough to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I find delightful, inspiring. And it's actually weirdly fun to go asking for money, not for yourself. <laughs> mm. So when I'm asking, I will be talking to various philanthropists and donors, as I've already talked to some. Luckily, none of this is for me. It would all go to research institutions and academics who need their time to be paid for and their university gets the cut and they need lab assistance and equipment and, and the fMRI and EEG time and the data collection and all that just costs. So it's fun to actually be in that place to try to make this vision happen to have, and to have a whole enthusiastic, excited group that shares that same vision. And these are super smart people, some MD, PhDs at some of the top universities in the world, that kind of thing, and just brilliant and caring and awesome. So it's fun. <laughs> and the conversations get to be super cool. 
because all of these people have thought about some variant of this stuff and to have their brilliant minds and hearts engage with the task they they come up with some really cool things so that's mm. also fun to listen yeah. to them and learn from them that's great I'm thinking about you know the uh, consciousness hackers out in Silicon Valley and yeah, Mikey that's them. Siegel and yeah, yeah those folks yeah 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 Katie and um, I know she's back out in the yeah. East Coast yeah she's great yeah. I, I, met, I met Katie recently out, out there and she's a part of this this dream yeah she's a core yeah. part of this yeah so anyway shout out to them um, yeah yeah I'm thinking about this goal that the consciousness hacking community has of kind of building consciousness technologies and, you know, mm -hmm. included in that broader vision of all kinds of stuff is, you know, insight related stuff. It seems to me as you're describing this big vision that by filling out the science, if technology is like an application of uh, scientific application or applied science, then it seems like the work you're talking about will help also in some sense, accelerate those consciousness hacking aims and at the same time, the other part of the work you're talking about would help, like you said, create the safety net or the, you know, the, you know, integrate that safety net into our current healthcare system, which, oh my gosh, um, anyway, <laughs> yes. uh, I don't know how much we want to go into that, but I, I share uh, your, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know you do times a hundred, but, uh, cause you, you've been on the front lines of it, but yep. you know, it's like, that seems like that safety net is exactly what you'd need if in fact these thing these psychotechnologies these technodelics and all these you know eeg all this stuff like if it comes to pass and people are just popping yeah if people are really able to access like these patterns at least the initial ones of them quicker you know and there's gonna be like more people freaking out i mean statistically <laughs> so yes. uh it totally seems agree. like there's an ethical obligation from i would say from technology makers building anything in this space to be helping to make sure that there's a safety net for the for the you, people that they're going to serve you and i are on exactly the same page there yep uh -huh. and it needs to be broad enough to actually handle the load because the few of us that do this that help support people through these experiences like it's a relatively small handful. Yeah. I could, I could name them on a few hands, the, yeah, the ones I, I know about who are really addressing this stuff head on. It's, it's a small group, and we're totally inadequate to the task. Mm -hmm. There's no way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, this is actually when I, mm. when, like, when I talked with um, Katie and Jay Sanguinetti, um, Katie Devaney, mm. and you know they're both interested in brain modification technologies like ultrasound direct current stimulation beam forming current stuff and and yeah they recognize the possibility that if you're suddenly throwing people into deeper spiritual development territory just like with psychedelics right which can definitely sometimes though unpredictably accelerate some of these processes though sometimes make it trickier to really integrate them obviously then yeah you're going to need people where they are that know what to do or at least know who knows what to do and to send them to them mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. even if you just have referral people if we built this into the competencies of some medical specialty or mm -hmm. actually there's a friend of mine was suggesting that create emergency spiritual doulas you know mm -hmm. sort of like for the birth process yeah like for like midwives but that would yeah. help facilitate the unfolding or the birth of their spiritual practice 
and that we would be able to refer people to them. Wow. That's cool. That's a beautiful vision. Wouldn't that be cool? That kids could be like, I want to be a spiritual doula when I grow up. Yeah, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we need them now, and we're going to need a whole bunch more, I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes good sense. I do want to give a shout out, by the way, to everybody out there working on the front lines, which I'm not at the moment, of medical industry. Wow. Uh, yeah. Good luck to you all. Stay safe. I, I hope it you know, goes as well as it possibly can, and thank you. So mm. recognize, if you're listening to this somewhere far in the future, that this is the, the mm. era of coronavirus, mm. and goodness gracious, it is a mess. So my heart goes out to everybody out there who's working in yeah. healthcare right now. Yeah. I just, I just talked to a cousin of mine who lives out in uh, Arizona and she, she just graduated and it is in the IC unit out there. And she's just been thrown right into the front lines because they're sitting right next to the Navajo people and who are, uh, you know, contracting this and having just much worse uh, outcomes from it. And, and, and she Oof. says it's just flooded. Yeah. It's just flooded. Oof. So yeah. Um, it's, that's for real. So yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, cool. I'm I'm so excited you're doing this work, Daniel. I'm curious to see how it unfolds, and maybe you can keep us keep us updated as the the thing develops. I definitely will. And so, forgive my shameless shout out. If people know of visionary philanthropists or organizations that have deep enough pockets that they can afford this kind of work enough vision to appreciate what it is and why it's important. A tolerance for how long this is going to take, meaning they need to be the sorts of investors that can think long-term deep structural change rather than quick, rapid turnaround, rapid product to market change, and who appreciate that this will be complicated, but that it needs to be done please do get in touch with me <laughs> mm -hmm. because yeah, I would love to hear from you and you talk never know with you who's out in the Buddhist geeks world <laughs> and help explain this stuff and explain why this is now what I'm obsessed with and doing, you know, with 80% of my time every single day and why this is going to be important for society. And speaking of coronavirus, now there are all these people at home. I'm suddenly getting all these calls from people and emails and they're like, hey, I'm just at home. I've got eight to 10 hours a day to practice oh, and I'm starting to use it. And I'm like, that is awesome. And holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. All these people? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Simultaneously, I have yeah, both reactions. Huh? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I've, I've seen the same thing. I've seen people really practicing a lot in the uh, because they have nothing else to do. <laughs> It's great. I mean, it's great. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a little, it's a little scary, <laughs> like you say. So cool. anyway, so if you're out there practicing, practice well and responsibly, be safe, yeah, you know, yeah. keep the energy yeah, yeah. grounded down. Don't push too hard, not too much future mind. Keep it centered here. Keep your wits about you. Balance factors. <laughs> Do this responsibly, please. Yeah. yeah. So it's exciting times from a certain point of view, from a practice point of view. Yeah. We need systems that can that can really make this much better. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. 
You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.